Welcome to Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, a production of the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary, where each week we explore a different facet of one of the largest nearly intact temperate zone ecosystems on Earth. This is the second episode of our reformatted full-length podcast. Freed from the two-minute format imposed by our old Two Minutes in the Yellowstone Ecosystem radio broadcast, we can now explore topics in greater depth. My name is Gary Robson, and I'll be co-hosting this new podcast with our education manager, Courtney Long. We haven't had an episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem in a few weeks because, well, I was sick and sounded like a frog croaking and Courtney was on vacation. So uh, we're a little bit behind on things and getting caught up now. Chronic wasting disease is a good topic for this, I think, largely because it's topical. It's been going on right now. Uh, It was first found in captive deer in the 1960s in Colorado, showed up in wild deer in 1981, and now it's really spreading all over the Rocky Mountain states. Um, As of last month, it was found in wild cervids, that's members of the deer family, so in this area that means white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, and moose all around the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, every county in Wyoming but one, and 10 counties in Montana, including the one we're broadcasting from, Carbon County. So, Courtney, why don't you start out and tell us a little bit about your experience with chronic wasting disease? Yeah, so for the past two hunting seasons, I've been a technician working with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, and I've been at two different check stations, um, one up in Chester, Montana, and the last one just in Hysham outside of Billings, collecting samples to send to the lab for chronic wasting disease. Is this where most of the data on chronic wasting disease comes from, check stations like this? Yeah, check stations play a huge role. So in addition to the normal biological check stations that uh, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks will have on Saturdays or Sundays, we're there almost every day taking samples um, as hunters come through after their hunting trips and that's where a lot of a lot of the data is coming from because really we don't have that much data you know apart from the check stations well i guess before we get into how it's tested for and everything what what actually is chronic wasting disease it's a type of transmissible spongiform encephalitis or tsc to kind of break that down Um, So transmissible, meaning that it is infectious. So between deer, elk, and moose, uh, caribou, and other parts of the world, they can uh, shed prions and um, catch the disease from each other, either through direct contact or indirect contact with their environment. Spongiform, just meaning that it kind of turns the brain to a sponge, so it creates holes in the brain. It is a neurological disorder. And so it creates a lot of behavioral changes and um, the deer actually look like, or their cervids look like they're wasting away. This TSE class Mm -hmm. of diseases includes mad cow disease, right? It does, yeah. So that's the the bovine spongiform encephalitis. Uh, Scrapie is the version that's in sheep um, that they actually think one of the theories is that the CWD came from scrapie in sheep. Um, and then in humans, we have Crushfeld Jacobs disease, so that's a human form. And um, Kuru is a famous prion disease uh, from the cannibals that were eating brain matter and, and getting Kuru. 
Yeah, I remember hearing about that one long ago. That We haven't heard anything about that recently, have we? No, we haven't. And I think a lot of uh, cultures are kind of understanding that eating brains of, you know, <laughs> of, your, <laughs> of your own humankind is, leads to a lot of uh, bad things, diseases. So I think one of the misconceptions here is about what animals it can spread to when we say cervids, referring to the deer family animals mm-hmm. with antlers that they shed. This doesn't include the pronghorn, right. domestic cattle, right. bison, mm-hmm. uh, bighorn sheep, mountain goats, the, the other hoofed animals that can be found around here. Yeah, and, and the, the phrasing that we usually say is, you know, it, it doesn't jump the, the species barrier. So between uh, the cervids and humans, cervids and other animals, there's a, there's a barrier um, a genetic barrier that kind of keeps it from jumping over and scientists have really been trying to, to make it cross that barrier and it, it won't do it so that's promising because mad cow disease eventually did cross the species barrier from cows to humans well let's hope given how widely this is spreading and given uh, what's the mortality rate on this <laughs> it's a hundred percent yeah every deer that they know of that has gotten chronic wasting disease has has died from it so it's always fatal not especially good news. Now, one of the things that makes CWD different is that it's not based on a bacteria. It's not based on a virus. It's based on prions. So what's a prion? Yeah, so a prion is a protein that's been misfolded. And scientists really don't know uh, exactly what prions do in our bodies, uh, what kinds of roles they play. But what we do know, especially with these TSE diseases, is that when a prion forms, it can touch another normal protein and actually make it fold up. And then it just continues to spread inside of the body so it's kind of like if you have a sheet of paper you know a normal sheet of paper you can write on you can draw on it but if i crumpled it up you know you can no longer use that sheet of paper for those purposes so that's kind of the the problem with prions is that they are no longer functioning proteins and this would be a crumpled piece of paper that would crumple other pieces of paper (laughs) that it came in contact with right (laughs) yeah Unlike a virus, which will soon die when removed from its host, or or bacteria, which need a very specific environment to survive in, these, just being proteins, can survive for a very long time outside a host, right? Yeah, so one of the ways that I said that uh, deer can get it is through indirect contact. So um, deer and cervids, other cervids, can shed these prions through... Uh, saliva through urine blood and so if there are shed proteins in the environment um, they can survive in the soil for decades nothing can really destroy them Uh, they don't get destroyed through the digestive tracts of other animals Um, they don't get destroyed through fire through normal you know ways that we would disinfect any other disease so they're pretty hardy. They can survive for a long time. And one of the things that I, I learned this year is that you really have to have an infectious dose for a cervid to contract it. So if a cervid walked up and, and ate a patch of grass that carried these prions, they would really have to ingest an infectious dose. And so they say that you know it's up to two years in the environment, depending on the soil and what type of habitat it, you know there is, how much rain it's getting, if it's leaching further into the soil. But it can be infectious, they think, for up to two years. And it's not going to spread to predators because right. of jumping that species <laughs> barrier. 
But if a, for example, a moose dies and that moose's brain is in a patch where grass, bushes, whatever mm-hmm. come up, that could be an intense enough concentration right there for another animal. Yeah, it could. And, and you bring up a good, a good topic of debate for a lot of people of what it is the role of predators with spreading CWDs. Do they help prevent the spread? Do they uh, promote the spread of it? And I really think that that's a pretty narrow scoped conversation because if you just look at one aspect of predators, you know, you really have to look at the whole ecosystem. And so you can't really just make an opinion about how it is or how a predator will affect one disease and in, in one ecosystem. Um, so yes, predators can play a role in even scavenging a carcass and they can carry the meat further away. So in that way, they can actually almost disperse and infect what would be an infectious dose. The prions do survive the digestive tract. Um, so they might be consuming a dead elk or moose or a deer and then poop it out several miles away but again that might not be enough quantity to be an infectious dose so there's a lot of debate still up there we're still learning a lot about this disease too one of the things that I think would be cool to um, to look into is the role of vultures those types of scavengers because they normally are known for Uh, actually having such an acidic stomach that they destroy a lot of diseases and viruses, but they don't know if if they have the capability of destroying the prions. But the pH is below one in a vulture's stomach, right? So it's it's some serious acid. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, But avian scavengers will spread... I mean, they can be many miles away Mm -hmm. when they poop out whatever they ate. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think it's unfair to just kind of put um, the focus just on predators because scavengers really are all sorts of animals that eat if they find a dead animal or or hunt, you know, a deer. So in mountain lions have been um, researched that they actually will take down more chronic wasting disease infected deer than a wolf would. And now, a quick side note. If you've been a fan of our podcast, you've heard us talking about how much we love living in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Is it your dream to live in a beautiful place like this? This episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem is sponsored by Greater Montana Realty in Red Lodge, Montana. And the owner, Harry Holman, can help you find that dream home or property. Give him a call at 406-446-9122 or visit their website, greatermontanarealty.com. They'll help you find a place to hang your hat. Because of this actually rather terrifying resistance to fire that the prions carry, aren't most states now recommending if you are a hunter, you have a carcass, uh, it tests positive, that you want to take it to a landfill where it's going to be buried instead of tossing it in a fire at home or yeah so a landfill is one of the best ways to uh, dispose of a carcass it can contain the prions um, pretty effectively and you know I had a hunter that asked a really good question he said you know I I dispose of my deer properly I make sure that I don't just dump the carcass or I try to burn it or I try to make sure that it it's pretty contained you know how am I spreading chronic wasting disease and really the answer is probably it's not hunters like that you know that are spreading chronic wasting disease we get a lot of deer that are you know dumped on the side of the road or you can't take a lot of body parts across state lines 
And so like the brain and the spinal column, you can't cross state lines with. And so a lot of people will get to a, a border and see a sign that tells them they can't and they'll just dump a carcass and you get a buildup of carcasses in a ditch. Um, so humans are, are one of the quickest ways that the disease can spread. But if you're an ethical hunter and you're pretty conscientious of how you dispose of your deer, uh, you're not going to really be contributing to that spread. Yeah, definitely a, a dump site's the best place, burning it. Those prions will survive in the ashes. So what happens when those ashes are, are then dumped in your backyard? So definitely put it in a nice thick trash bag and take it to the dump. Speaking of the different body parts, the typical leftovers of field dressing, the gut pile, mm -hmm. are not likely to be carrying prions. Is that right? No, the prions will be throughout the whole body. It's just concentrated in the brain and the spinal column. And so since it is a neurological disease, but it's found in, in the muscle tissues and the blood. And um, so it is found throughout the body. It's just in less concentration. Okay. So how do you test for it? So when we test for chronic wasting disease, unfortunately, there's no way to test uh, a live deer at this point. So we really rely on hunter harvested deer or deer that are symptomatic, roadkill deer. And so what we'll do is uh, we will take the lymph nodes out of a deer. And then if we aren't, don't have lymph nodes because the deer was shot in the neck, uh, we'll take a part of the brainstem and test the brainstem as well. So we, we just take the, the deer and kind of lean the head back and cut, cut the throat to get to the retropharyngeal lymph nodes and take those out. And then we'll also, while we're doing it, we'll take a piece of muscle for genetic and we'll take a tooth for age of the deer as well. You mentioned being symptomatic. What, what does symptomatic look like with a deer with CWD? So we really don't see a lot of symptomatic deer. Uh, scientists would think that most deer die from natural causes before they become truly symptomatic. So it can take 18 months to two years before a deer becomes symptomatic. So we get a lot of hunters that say, well, I don't think it has chronic wasting disease because it's a pretty healthy looking deer. And then they'll give us, let us take a sample, and then they'll come back positive. So it can take a long time for these deers to be symptomatic. And it's kind of progressive because their brain is degenerating. So they might start drooling, they might walk in circles, they might just start behaving oddly differently, and they will look like they're wasting away. And certainly in many of those cases, that very behavior and the diminishing brain capacity mm -hmm. will make it a much easier target for a predator as well. Yeah, exactly. Or, or a car. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So, And they, they do become really thirsty too. They tend to drink more water and urinate more. And so you might see them by water sources a lot as well, drinking drinking a lot of water. Excessively. And those, those riparian sources are where the ambush hunters like mm -hmm. to hang out, mm -hmm. the ambush predators. Yeah, yeah. So how closely related are CWD and mad cow? Well, they're in the same family of diseases, but you know, they are limited to those to those families of animals that they infect. And so it's prions, it's just prions in the system of, of that specific type of animal. So they're in the same family of diseases. They are prion diseases. They act in similar ways, but um, they cannot be considered the same. I've heard debate out there about whether prions are alive. 
<laughs> well, proteins <laughs> aren't alive. It doesn't so. <laughs> sound like it to me, but then on the other hand, you know, back back when I was in yeah. college, we were debating whether viruses were alive. Yeah, well, and there's still so much we're learning about this disease. It's kind of crazy year after year um, what scientists are, are finding more and more about, about this disease. So it really has a huge implication for people, for us, because... You know, so much, especially here in Montana, we rely on that hunter harvesting for, for food for the year. And so this really has a lot of effect on the population of our deer and our elk and our moose. The first wild elk was just found outside of Red Lodge um, this year. So it's spreading. We also found our first uh, wild moose positive with chronic wasting disease. And we're really seeing a lot of places that have high um, high concentration is, is around cities and uh, dump areas. You know, anytime you, you bait an animal, even if you're just, you wanna see deer in your yard and you're, you're offering food for them to eat, that's an opportunity for that disease to spread. And that's, that's a nice callback to one of the earlier episodes of our old Two Minutes in the Yellowstone Ecosystem podcast, where we talked about feeding wild animals. Mm-hmm. And people think, especially in the middle of the winter, boy, look at those poor, cold, hungry deer. I'm, I'm going to give them something to eat, and it's going to help. And they don't realize that, first of all, when you bring a large concentration of prey animals into one area, you're going to get a large mm-hmm. concentration of predators, which is why, right here in Red Lodge, we have bobcats and mountain lions and coyotes and foxes and bears hunting right within the city limits. Yeah. But also a large concentration of any animal mm-hmm. is going to facilitate the spread of disease, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's always the fluctuations of predator-prey populations. Prey populations, they get really high and eventually they crash and it's usually with spread of diseases. And then the, the predator population goes down as prey go down, and it's a constant fluctuation up and down of, of those populations. So with diseases like chronic wasting disease, it's here to stay. It is spreading, and so we just hope that we can get ahead of it you know, here in Montana and start managing our population so that we have those resources in the future for us and for wild animals. And one of the effects it's had on the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary, yeah. uh, sanctuaries are not allowed to have cervids anymore on display, uh, largely because of the possibility of creating a, a central point for spreading if they can get it from a wild animal. Yeah, and we really are seeing that a lot of the, the deer that have chronic wasting disease are coming off of game farms and elk. You know, the first the first elk in Montana were from a game farm, so captive animals for some reason can seem to be a a vector for for these diseases too all right any other final comments no i appreciate you let me talk about this all right well we will be back with you for our next episode uh, which ties a little more closely to the wildlife sanctuary we will be talking about how does an animal become non-releasable and end up at a sanctuary like ours instead of living its uh, living its life out in the wild Coming up in our next episode, we'll take a more in-depth look into a subject we covered briefly in one of the most popular episodes of our Two Minutes in the Yellowstone Ecosystem podcast. How do animals end up in a sanctuary like this one? What makes an animal non-releasable? How does it find its way to a place like the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary? 
If you have comments about this episode of our podcast or questions about the upcoming episode, email podcast at yellowstonewildlife.org or leave us a text or voicemail at 406-426-1210. Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem is a production of the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary in Red Lodge, Montana. Our theme music was written and performed by Justin Satterfield and recorded by Sean Keeney. For show notes and links, please visit yellowstoneecosystem.com. I'm your host, Gary Robson, and I hope you'll join us next week for another episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. Ha, 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 ha.